to what extent is your book, but the history of climate change, kind of the history of men being dicks? It's very much a history of men being dicks, yeah. Right. Although I should say that there are quite a few female dicks as well. Like, there, it's not, it's not just... It's mainly white people being awful. White men being dicks. White rich men, but also some poorer men and some women who just decided they, for a laugh, would be awful too. <laughs> I mean, Queen Victoria was in charge for a lot of the key period. Let's not let women off the hook here. In the town lit up, the world gets still. You are in person in my eyes. In your eyes? You're in my eyes. You're not in my computer, you're in my eyes. Welcome to Sustainable number 220. Welcome yourself to Sustainable 220. We are your favourite friendly little weekly environment podcast. How do you know? How do you know? Uh, Well, are we not your favourite friendly weekly environment podcast? Well, just say you're, you're saying that on behalf of the listeners. No, no, it's your. We are oh, your favourite. Oh, my. Oh, yes. no, you're very much my favourite. Yes, we quite. Good. Okay. Um, all about people and the planet. And despite a history of inhoffery, why we can still find reasons to chuckle about it every now and then. Ain't we are? Yes, we are. And we're in person for the first time in uh, 60-something episodes. Episode 169 was the last one we'd done in person. That's nuts. So that must be over, well over a year ago. Yeah, a year and yeah. four months, something wow. like that. And why are we? Why are we here? Why are we in person? Oh, yeah, we are here in person and in London, in stinky, stinky London, London yeah. um, in ex-industrial Kings Cross, London. We are here because uh, we're here to meet someone who knows all about this area and about its history and the history of energy and climate and why we are in the pickle that we are and how we got here and how things might have been different. And that person is the exceptionally eminent Dr. Alice Bell, who, you may remember, has been on Babel before. Three Three times. times. Yes, yes. Um, And uh, she's come back from war. And she's come back to tell us about her new book, which is called Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. And it's bloody good. Tell you that much for free. Big, isn't it? Big it's big, book, quite heavy. In- How many trees you cut down for that there? Well, nice. yeah, but no, it's fantastic. Um, Alice is fantastic. And we come to London because we wanted Alice to bring to life some of the things that we see. So as well as chatting to Alice about the book, which you'll hear, we also chat to her in an old gasometer just around the corner, which, of course, would have had stinky gas in it, um, much like your bottom, and now uh, is some of London's swankiest homes. And much kind of, like my bottom. Much like your bottom. Um, and so we've done a bit of that. Yeah, and we just thought it'd be nice to actually do something in person, because yeah. we can. So, yes, this is the history of climate change. These are some of the things we learned about it. Do go and purchase our biggest experiment by Alice Bell. What is out now, as you listen? Out now. Out, out now. now. Um, and, yeah, this is our chat with her. Before that, just the usual couple of disclaimers. We all three do work 
for environment charities, don't we all? Yes, we do. But these are very much our own views. So if anything that we say makes you want to write 150,000 words all about why we are wrong and how we got to here and where we're going in the future, take it up with me and Ol directly, or indeed Alice, but not with anyone for whom we work. Yes? If you would like to hear more of these sorts of things, you're going to have to pay for them. Not directly. Not directly. But we need your cash. Give us some cash at Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash sustainable. Thank you so much to everybody who does. Thank you to the person who accidentally gave us a huge donation and realised they put the zero in the shit, wrong place. Shit, 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 shit. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Three minutes later, edited it down by a tenth. Uh, quite not right. Be, not before we uh, spent... No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to that person. Thank you to all of you. It makes such a big difference. It, it, it helps us do things like this uh, pace of train tickets all the rest of it so we really appreciate it um, that is it let's get on with this lovely chat with Alice and we started by sort of telling her asking her to tell us what on earth are we sitting in and why is it important we are in a bit or by the canal in a bit of King's Cross. Uh, in London. In London, yes. yes. In North London, uh, near where Harry Potter gets on his train to go up to school. Uh, inside what used to be a gasometer. So, 100 years ago, uh, what we are now sitting in would have been filled with gas that would have been made from burning coal to make uh, a type of gas, which then would have been pumped around all the houses and businesses and streets around here to light the streets as well as to heat them. Uh, and that's that, yeah. those the, the name for this thing that we're in, which is that big sort of circular building thing. I've never known what it's called. You're big f- circular building big thing. Big circular building well, thing. The way I, I recognise it is from the cricket. I know you don't like cricket, but whenever you used to watch cricket and it was coming from the Oval in London, big gasometer in the background. And I, that's, that's where I learned about gasometers. Isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, but it's a dangerous... It always struck me as like a dangerous thing to have an absolute shit ton of gas in the middle of a city. At the time, people were a little bit alarmed by that. There <laughs> were uh, so when these started being built from the beginning of the 19th century, kind of 19, 1810s onwards. These, this one that we're sitting in now, I think, is from the middle, like 1850s, um, and. There were lots of kind of commissions. Uh, the Royal Society issued a report. The various groups in the government kind of were a little bit alarmed by it. People talk about is this is the equivalent of having like a huge set of powder kegs, you know, just having like the military's right. um, collection of plo- explosives being kept in the centre of town. Like the military at the time would keep their explosives kind of out what, east, you know, like in Woolwich Arsenal or somewhere. You wouldn't do it right in the middle of Westminster or King's Cross or Oval. So... Uh, the ones we're in now are by King's Cross, which certainly used to be a very industrial area, still is kind of, uh, or still is sort of looks like that. Uh, but the first, first ever world's first gas works, the first one of these ever built was in Westminster um, because That's the company crazy. who invented this kind of got their ability to build this industry, which now structures so much of how we heat our homes uh, all over the world, so the origins of the gas industry. Um, they managed to get the license to allow them to do their first project by offering free gas lighting to the Houses of Parliament. So they knew that when they were then going to set up their first project, it had to be within pipe distance of the Houses of Parliament. So the world's first gas works were in what is now a home office building. So those ones, they did decide it probably wasn't a good idea to have that in the middle of Westminster. So they closed those ones down when they could start to build um, gas works further away from where you wanted the gas to be used. So how's the environment? 
Bit smoky, isn't it? <laughs> what do you mean, my department? Uh, chaos, as usual. Today we have what we call natural gas, and it's called natural gas because it comes out the ground. Uh, it becomes, it's a big... Well, and like, it's lovely. It's, it's lovely called natural, nice, yeah. then it must be nice. So the modern gas industry loves that they call it natural gas because it helps them sell a vision of what gas is as the cleaner fossil fuel. And they've done that sort of like the 60s, really. Um, but the reason it's, ha it's called that is as opposed to what the kind of gas we, used, we originally had that was originally sold to us, which was manufactured gas made from coal. Um, so you'd, 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 you had to burn that. the coal to make the gas and you'd store it in these gasometers and it would produce a huge amount of coal tar um, which is why we have purple food colouring what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Okay. Well, okay. Uh, they produced all this coal tar and they first of all they decided they'd just put it in the river because that's what you do when you've got a load of po pollution so you put it in a river and then they realised that they couldn't get away with that much longer because people complained about it um, so various people started studying what they could do with all this coal tar and chemists got really interested in it because it seemed quite it is chemically quite interesting um, so various different people tried different things Mr McIntosh realised that you could use it to waterproof clothing and that's why we have waterproof clothing. Mm, it comes from a byproduct of the coal gas industry. Uh, they used a lot of it to make creosote for the railways, which were at the time being built all over the country. And then this guy, William Perkins, who was just 19, he was a teenager, chemistry student in a new chemistry college just off Oxford Street. He was an absolute nerd and took his homework home at the Easter holidays and was just working at home with a bit of coal tar that he'd taken home. And he'd convinced himself that he could find a cure for malaria inside this coal tar. He never found a cure for malaria, but he did find purple dye, uh, which then became <laughs> purple dye for clothing, uh, kind of fashion for mauve, um, but also food dyes that were pink. He put the yellow in artificial custard powder, bird's custard powder, uh, and launched arguably the modern um, kind of chemical industry. And so huge amounts of our products that we have today, which come from chemists investigating uh, complex hydrocarbons. Well, um, I've just got a ball in the face. <laughs> A huge amount of the modern chemical industry that we have today, which comes from finding things that you can do with bits of hydrocarbons, comes from this uh, discovery that he made messing around with their coal. So tar. what you're basically saying is, isn't it brilliant that we had coal? Because uh, all it, of these it, brilliant it, things have come from coal. And, lit, and hundreds yeah. of thousands of others, presumably. These are all like this sort of centrality of this thing to our modern life. Well, it kept a lot of people warm and it lit their homes. It, uh, the gas lighting industry challenged the whaling industry. Would like to say it saved a lot of whales, but actually what happened was people found other reasons to kill whales. And they also found that coal was a really good way of building steamships to help you find more whales to kill even more whales. Yeah. So actually, it didn't, it didn't do that. Um, but there's certainly people made money out of it and people felt comforted by it and warmed, warm and, and lit their lives. Um, and then in the middle of the 20th century, we found ways of taking the gas that we could find from the ground, so-called natural gas, uh, and use that to, to heat our homes. We stopped lighting our homes using gas. We used electricity by then. But that's um, the thing I've never understood, because I, I, I just haven't bothered trying to find out about it, I guess. But like, Somebody's written a book about it around here yes, somewhere. No, but, but gas, like using gas to light our homes. So every home that had lighting just had a load of gas coming in that was being set fire and like a big flame Well, it was inside. a lot safer and nicer smelling than setting fire to a load of whale fat. Okay, I can, I can see that, but it still doesn't sound safe. It wasn't, I mean, it was a little bit, problem. that's where we get the phrase the gaslight because you can mess with the gaslighting. There's a whole, is there a Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. There's some uh, 
there's some uh, mystery story from that Sherlock Holmes era about gaslighting and how someone poisons someone through the gaslighting. There's some clever sister. They lived in an apartment block and they worked out to do something with the gaslighting, so they poisoned their ex-boyfriend or something. Um, so that's where the phrase comes from. Gaslighting, yeah. It's a film uh, which was a play before that, which is set in the era of when we had gaslight. And it's about a woman whose husband is trying to convince her that she's gone crazy, which is what yeah. to gaslight means, is to convince someone that they're going crazy. You told and me you'd so, seen that old, do you remember? That's very good. That is very good, actually. If I could only get inside that brain of yours and understand what makes you do these crazy, twisted things. Gregory, are you trying to tell me I'm insane? Well, he was doing exactly what you just did. Uh, and he would be playing with the gas, because it was all a, a set of pipes. So you could play with one light in one room and it would affect other other lights because of the nature of the, the setup. So he'd play with some lighting and it would it would flicker and she'd be, oh, it's flickered. And he'd go, oh, it's not. It's something's going, you, you're wow, not it. So that's where Gaslight comes from. It's a play and then a film called Gaslight about uh, manipulation of a woman's mind by her husband. But relying on gaslighting, which now, it's, as it's such a, like, a common phrase, you're like, nobody has any concept of what gaslighting actually is. So in the middle of the 20th century, we worked out how we could move gas that we got out of like the North Sea or the ground somewhere else we drilled that we'd get when we were drilling for oil. And we could use that to light our, or heat our homes. And we didn't need to use gas that we made from coal. So we went from making gas from coal, which was incredibly polluting and very dangerous, to just burning gas that came out of the ground, which was still pretty polluting and dangerous, but just seemed like slightly less of a problem at the time. And so places like this, which we're sitting now, these old gasometers, which used to be to store the, the gas were gradually retired um, and they left quite a lot of pollution often where they were and they've kind of stayed where they were doing nothing for a long time but recently property prices for land in London has gone up so much that people have felt worth doing stuff with it and I think there's a sort of industrial revolution chic that's a little bit popular at the moment well, so I mean, people that's... have started building so you said there's those uh, gas gasometers in the back of uh, when you watch the cricket at the Oval yeah. those ones are currently being developed into a big development um, and there's more in Acton I think uh, all over the world places people are doing that Your book starts in a place that is very dear to me, which is Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace, the Crystal Palace indeed, which was originally in central London, got shipped to Crystal Palace. It's convenient. And your book talks about the kind of wonder of, firstly, that age, you know, big, the Crystal Palace itself being a big, massive thing made of glass and iron, but all the stuff in it being about how brilliant it was to be a Victorian, right? And that some of the stuff that was beginning to be shown then was steam and coal and kind of this innovative tech stuff and do you think we still kind of think that fossil fuels are glamorous kind of on the way over here one of the reasons i was asking that on the way over here i was listening to an episode we did about formula one randomly a few years ago oh, yeah. and, and we're talking in that about how like formula one is all about kind of look at my engine and what do you think is fossil fuels still sexy in the year 2021 or not I don't think they have been for a long time. I think they've been put, done a lot of work to make use of them look sexy, like Formula One is a very good example of that. And I think one of the reasons they're so involved in the promotion of Formula One is that they were, and why they spend so much money on advertising and associating themselves with things that they shouldn't necessarily have anything to do with, like the Science Museum, to use a topical example, <laughs> is because they want to make themselves 
look good because they know that most people don't like them. Like when you look at um, when people start, when the scientists started to get worried about climate change in the 50s, one of the reasons they sort of shrugged it off, they didn't completely shrug it off, but they still sort of shrugged it off, was they just thought nuclear was going to take over anyway because yeah, right. fossil fuels was a bit of a silly idea. Like digging big holes in the ground to set fire to really ancient bugs is a little bit weird. Everyone like people got rid of coal pretty quickly as soon as they could. Like we've, because it's dirty. Yeah, people don't yeah. like if you can get away with not having coal, you don't burn it. We still burn a humongous amount of coal in, in the world, uh, but p- countries like Britain are very proud of the fact that they've they've stopped burning coal, and that's because they are rich enough to have that choice. Like we're sitting around us, we're all kind of wearing probably stuff that. Um, was produced in countries you know we were probably we are wearing clothes that were produced through children in other countries having to choke through coal pollution mm. um, you know people who are rich enough can move away from coal and this has been true for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, and other people don't have the choice but if you have the choice you'd rather not choke through that you wouldn't go to the effort of, of cutting a big hole in the ground and slurping out loads of oil and gas if you didn't have to um, so, and I think people have general obviously the oil industry has got a big reason to keep us going with that but they put a huge amount of effort into it that's why they have such humongous PR budgets Kent Brockman at the Action News Desk a massive tanker has run aground on the central coastline spilling millions of gallons of oil on baby seal beach oh no it'll be okay honey there's lots more oil where that came from Hello there, my name is Crichton2x4b523p, such a jerky middle name, and you are listening to Sustainababble. So you would be forgiven, Alice, for thinking that climate change was a thing that was only discovered like 10 years ago or 20 years ago or something like that, maybe 40 if you kind of read the literature, but your book starts pretty much with the story of the first person to put two and two together and go hang on a minute carbon dioxide makes stuff warm and that was like 160 years ago yeah i was working out it's like 165 years in a month or so i was thinking i'd better like write something when the anniversary comes around yeah 1850s so there was a woman called Eunice Foote who was a scientist sort of in her spare time as people could be back then it was slightly less delineated as a as a profession that you had to just do all of your time for and do lots of advanced degrees before you could do um, and she was getting ready to do some experiments that she hoped she could present at the scientific conference that was happening a bit later that year and she put some uh, cylinders filled with gas on her windowsill to see how different gases might absorb heat in different ways and she's just interested in gases she's a scientist she's just interested in stuff she's not thinking this is going to be like a big discovery that's going to change the world she wasn't she's trying to just... make everyone communist at that point no <laughs> I mean, she was well she was a women's rights activist so one of the interesting things about her is that she was an activist when she wasn't being a scientist she didn't necessarily put those two together maybe if she'd realized the ramifications of what she was studying maybe we would have had climate activism earlier but she didn't she just was studying gases in a very abstract sense and she realized that carbon dioxide could trap a lot of heat held a lot of heat she kind of mused almost like in passing because she knew about the theory of the greenhouse effect that sort of said that there were this insulating blanket of gases around the earth so even then they knew that so that comes from the 1830s that's even older and she had this idea of that that she knew about she well actually if that insulating blanket of gases was really full of carbon dioxide then it would get really really hot 
And she's like, well, just if, if perhaps we had an atmosphere full of carbon dioxide, it would get really hot. What she didn't realise at the time was that we were already warming the planet by cutting down lots of trees and burning lots of fossil fuels. It wasn't discernible back then. Now, with advanced magic science goggles, we can look back in time and realise that that was happening back then. But to people at the time, even great scientists like Eunice Foote didn't know. So she was just like, this is theory. And it wasn't really until the end of that century that some scientists in Sweden kind of went, oh, we're burning a lot of fossil fuels. Maybe that could warm the planet. But even then they thought, this is something that would happen in the future. They didn't realise we were doing it already. They were like, well, maybe, possibly, in hundreds of years' time, it might get a bit hot. And they also thought that that might be quite nice possibly because they lived in Sweden, Sweden the idea yeah. of it being yeah. warmer was a nice idea I mean I have to say we are sitting here in what is basically rain yeah yeah I mean, so, so you can so see where they're coming yes, from yes and allegedly summer allegedly, allegedly summer, summer yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that when that it wasn't really until the 1950s like 100 years after foot that people kind of went all right we know that it could happen and that it could be done by us and that it's already happening and oops 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 we probably should do something about it at which point we leapt into action Obviously. We do nothing until our heads have actually been cut off. <laughs> and then we spring into action. <laughs> exactly. No, no. Well, we let into some action. We did, you know, we, we, the, a guy called Roger Ravel, who was one of the people who kind of did some seminal research in the 50s, which was a paper that basically went, oops. He was quite a high-ranking American scientist, very well-connected, very good at getting money in for new niche, interesting ideas. And he was the first person to brief Congress on the issue. In 1957, he told um, Congress about it. And he also used that as an opportunity to say, give me some money to research it. And he set up what was probably the first real climate science project that was designed to actually study climate science rather than discovering stuff accidentally while you were looking for something else like theories of grasses and um, that's the research we now know as the Keeling curve that measures carbon dioxide in Hawaii so there's climate nerds will know that if you want to know how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere you ask some researchers in Hawaii um, that have been studying this since the 50s set up by a guy called Keeling and the data um, that they have put out if you put it on a graph is known as the Keeling curve and that was set up in the late 50s by Roger Revell going whoops Right, I, I've got an admission. Um, I had never heard of Eunice Foot until I oh, wrote a book. And I guess that's kind of the point of your book a little bit, isn't it? Like, telling us why, like, well, I guess, why, why is it that someone who is clearly incredibly significant in the entire climate story is someone that I've not heard of? And it's not just because I'm lazy and don't read things. Like, that. <laughs> who knows? Who's that? When I think of the kind of original climatey people, it is like Tyndall and stuff. Who's the Tyndall Centre? Who's named after? And, uh, but but that's not telling us the whole story. So why? Well, at the time, it didn't seem very important. Um, I mean, it got some coverage because she did some interesting work on gases, and people read it and talked about it. It was in Scientific American, but it's like most most science gets forgotten. Most most scientists get forgotten. Uh, I think one of the reasons Tyndall gets remembered is that he also did lots of other things and he had a high-profile job at the Royal Institution. Okay. Another big character in this, one of the scientists who helped twig that, oh, these fossil fuels might cause a problem and kind of maybe issued an early warning about this in uh, the turn of the century, Sventi Arrhenius, who's the Swedish, one of the Swedish scientists, 
He was also famous because he'd already basically invented physical chemistry and got a Nobel Prize, which is also why he had a platform for saying what otherwise would have been quite a weird thing and no one really would have paid much attention to at the time, which is, oh, maybe this burning of fossil fuels in the future might cause some global heating. So it's partly that she just got forgotten because people forgot that stuff. She didn't think it was significant. I think it is also that she was forgotten because she was a woman. There is that side of it as well. It's a really wonderful phrase quite early on when you quote one of the male scientists of the time putting down something like uh, these little women's... I can't remember it either. So she, her paper, one of the things that's a bit controversial about Eunice Foote is that her paper, when, she, when it was presented at a big American science conference, wasn't read by her. So her and her husband both did scientific work that at the time looked kind of similar, and they both presented it at this big conference. And he read out his paper himself, whereas hers was read out for her by another scientist. Now, people look at this now and go... That's disgusting, the patriarchy. We don't actually know why her paper was read out for her. It could have been because people recognised it as a really interesting paper and wanted to give it a bit more prominence. So this um, scientist, John Henry, he was a very important American scientist at the time. He was key to understanding electricity. He founded the Smithsonian. It's a big name in American science still and, and back then was was too uh, the fact that he was reading her paper might have been just to promote it and he made some kind of what was then described as gallant remarks about the female the women scientists where he said that it was very I think I can't remember what it is either something like it's very beautiful and very refined or something like that um, but I he, at the time it was you know it's described as gallant and it, it seemed like he was saying oh these women are worth listening to although it is also saying isn't it surprising these women are yeah. worth listening to you never guess what I heard today. I heard something by a woman. A woman? <laughs> I think there was a little bit of that. And also, just people don't record women's history in the same way. So it was easier for it to be forgotten. So this thing that had seemed like just one of many interesting things that Tyndall had said, by the time it got to the late 20th century, people were like, ah, oh, that's a very interesting thing that Tyndall said. Turned out to be crucial to our understanding of a major crisis of humanity for our time. We'd better name a big centre after him. Um, but it was, it, you know, it's, it's partly because he did all sorts of other things, but it, it was also just people remember what men said. And it does seem that she was forgotten. Um, it wasn't helped by the fact there was a big fire in the Smithsonian where a lot of her records were. Um, so that's another reason why Foot was forgotten. And I mean, one of the things that I, when I do talks about uh, about these these characters, I have slides and I have these pictures of lots of sort of stern looking white male scientists and then I have a blank slide for her because we don't have a photograph of her. No way. Now we do think that she was rich enough and kind of powerful enough there probably was a photograph taken you know a woman of her class at the time in america at that part of america there probably were photographs taken of her her daughter married someone politically significant as well so probably photographs of the family but they just weren't kept they weren't archived so there's uh there is now a kind of quest to find a photograph of her because it must exist it's just how can we find out it's her so some scientists in the states catherine Keo and a few others have got AI bots out looking for a photograph of her. Yes. Which some, so maybe my slides in a couple of years, I'll be able to show what she looks like. If any Babel listeners have a picture of Eunice Foot kicking around their attic, Alice wants it. Definitely. And related to that question, to what extent is 
your book, but the history of climate change, kind of the history of men being dicks. It's very much a history of men being dicks, yeah. Right. Although I should say that there are quite a few female dicks as well. Like, there, it's not, it's not just... It's mainly white people being awful. White men being dicks. White rich men, but also some poorer men and some women who just decided they, for a laugh, would be awful too. <laughs> I mean, Queen Victoria was in charge for a lot of the key period. Let's not let women off the hook here. And is, genuinely, is that significant? I mean, one of the things we're interested in, I guess, now is what, how could this have gone differently and how, you know, how might it have gone differently? And is, if the patriarchy was less of a thing, might climate change have been less of a thing? Or is that just a pointless kind of thought experiment? Maybe. I, I mean, I think I definitely think that one of the reasons we are challenged in the way that we are is that we chose not just to burn fossil fuels, but to do to build a whole infrastructure and economy and way of burning fossil fuels that uh, kind of rewards greed and doesn't reward caring for things. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's because it was run by men. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, you, you could take a particular approach to patriarchy that would pa- put that pattern onto it. But I think... I think you could look at it in a broader sense that, you know, we could have built the oil industry in a different way. uh, Or if the oil industry had evolved in a different way, maybe it would have reacted to climate change in a different way. So uh, some analysts might choose to say that's patriarchy's fault. I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that. Given this stuff was all under the ground and given humans are always exploring for new things we like new, to dig new stuff. places to go we like to dig holes we like digging holes we definitely do. there must be some part of our kind of hardwired evolution which is about digging holes but but given all that do you think ultimately this was inevitable in some shape or form like we might have done Climate things slightly yeah, yeah that like we might have dug things up slightly sooner slightly later in slightly different ways as you're saying might have structured our economy slightly differently but ultimately it was inevitable that we were going to find this stuff, discover it was incredibly useful, burn it all, bugger up the climate. I think there's different ways we might have done energy. Like there's, um, you know, some there's, some people would argue that actually we, when we decided to burn a load of coal, we could have had a slightly different version of what became the steam age. It was much more based on water power. I'm not sure I'd buy that, but, it, you know, we could imagine like... Uh, a kind of steampunkish idea of an alternative history, which was like water power uh, rather than steam power. It could have been that we did electricity in a slightly different way. We could have invested in renewables a lot earlier. Like one of the things that I don't think people always realise and really came home to me when I was writing the book is uh, the very first really big electrical project that just did electricity in a massive scale was renewables. It was hydro hydro power. It was Niagara Falls. So when I like occasionally I like to go, hey, you know, we had electric cars in the 1890s and people are like, yeah, all right, but it was coal. And like, not necessarily. Like, the the first volts down the line from Niagara powered the electric buses. There was an electric bus you could take in Ireland to visit the Giants Causeway that again was powered by hydro. Um, we wow. had, we didn't have wind projects at that scale at that time, but we potentially could have if people had. Like, there was a lot of interest in getting out of coal. Partly because of the steam age, so, um, so energy nerds will know the Jevons uh, problem. Jevons paradox. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what that? Alice do you know what that is? The Jevons paradox. Uh, no, we applaud Alice for use <laughs> okay. of the Jevons Fine. paradox, okay, and I retrospectively want all claxons <laughs> of mine removed whenever I've mentioned it. If you don't know what it is, Google it. The important thing is, it is a thing that makes people angry about energy, um, and it comes from an economist in the mid 18th century, 19th century going 
oh crap, we're burning a lot of coal because we got through, we started burning huge amounts of coal to power factories through Bolton and Watts steam engines and then we put them on trains and in boats and that got through, particularly boats got through enormous amounts of coal and they were worried that we'd run out. That's one of the reasons we talk about renewable because it's different from the idea of a finite resource on the ground. Uh, before we realised that we could, we, the problem that will run out is the least of our problems because mm. we grew out the environment way before then. Um, they were worried that we were going to run out and then particularly in the UK, they were worried that we'd run out of British coal and we'd have to rely on other countries and maybe these bigger that, countries like... foreign muck. Well, they were really worried that Britain... There was a real sense that the British... Uh, like, lots of empires get this. They get very successful and then they get worried that it's all about to, to falter and they were, like, looking at the, the, the rising power of America and things like Russia, places like Russia and going... You know, they nearly lost what to Russia while he was building his steam engine, actually. And they are like, well, what if we... we um, you know, what if the other powers take over? Some guests of ours reach Cambridge. Bill here from Yugoslavia is one of them. With 30,000 other volunteers from various parts of Europe, he's come to help us get the coal. And so they did think, like people like Calvin, a uh, scientist in, in the 19th century, oh, was temperature like... temperature dude. Temperature dude, exactly. Man yeah. who invented heat. It's <laughs> <laughs> bloody freezing to me, Lived in Glasgow. Could not surprise you obsessed with temperature um but he well partly because he lived in glasgow he came up with an idea for making electricity out of rain as you would do if you were glass region um but he also imagined that he, he people every now and again dig out things that he wrote about the power of solar and there was a lot of hope that we would we would have solar power or, or wind power i mean ultimately coal was cheap and they still managed to find ways of getting it out of the ground so it kept going but we could have there could have just been people like napoleon invested in solar power if he hadn't cut his grants to solar power maybe it would have happened a bit earlier and he invested in solar yeah napoleon invested in solar power no way solar steam power But the story is not just a technological one, it's a political and a power one as well, right? And I guess the other part of was it is inevitable was, yeah, okay, you know, maybe we may have used more or less coal and oil and gas, but once you start using that stuff, you then start making a lot of people very rich a lot quicker than other people, and that starts to make them very powerful. And is your sense that that was also inevitable, or there was an inevitability about it, that once you've got rich oil barons, you've then got a political system that is hardwired to keep them in? It like is really noticeably, noticeable, particularly with the oil industry. You can see the patterns of it kind of being set with the coal industry, with some people like Robert Peel getting really, really, or his family getting really, really rich in coal, and kind of the what the political activists of the 1840s called the smokeocracy, which was this sort yeah. of power uh, elite of people who were connected to the, the fossil fuel coal industry in some way, either digging it or burning it. And But then the patterns in the oil industry were even more marked. Um, and also, to some extent, the rail industry, like the, the kind of the, the powerful monopolies in, that developed in America in the late 19th century, which is why we have games like Monopoly and why the issue of monopolies was such a big deal. The people, the really rich people of the Gilded Age in America, these people who built these incredibly, you know, giant skyscrapers and had this sort of sense of, of humongous wealth at a time when lots of people were also really, really poor in the States. Um, that era comes from people making a lot of money very fast. And you see that run through so much of the oil industry although also a lot of the the problems of the power of the oil industry come from really old like much more old-fashioned british colonialism and thinking how can we protect our naval power like churchill wanting to thinking all right well we have to move to to oil rather than having coal-powered ships 
one of the benefits of that one of the reasons the British Navy stuck with coal for so long was that they had it had a, a source of it in the UK and that seems like a sensible thing to protect your navy. You don't want to be relying on well, not just that foreign muck because they're a bit racist, but actually just for security reasons, it's safer if you can get it from your own country. They didn't want to. You can't get much oil in the UK. They didn't want to have to rely. Certainly, didn't want to have to rely on the, the Dutch or, or anyone that they might be competing with, um, or the Russians. Uh, so they, you know, they, they built the architecture of what is now modern BP and you had the the, the various deals that built uh, various different oil companies um, in what we might call the Middle East. Um, and that that comes from quite old school colonialist ideas often like and was wrapped up in the kind of mid 19th, mid 20th century geopolitics. And that's a different type of corruption and a different type of power than just someone like Rockefeller going, how can I get loads of money? <laughs> I've got piles! <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about um, about scientists? Because they, we, we sort of hold them up as like these slightly godlike figures these days. Well, most, well, most of us do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you perhaps could tell the story of what happened on your <laughs> early this afternoon. I got, I got vaccinated today, and because I work in Camden, I chose to get vaccinated at the Crick, which was exciting because the Crick is a big centre for scientific research. And I was all excited. I'm going to get my vaccine at this big centre for scientific research. And uh, outside is Piers Corbyn, who climate people will know well, yes. um, brother of. Um, Oh, what's his name? Oh, Jeremy. No. Jeremy. Oh, oh no. Jeremy. God, oh, no. The vaccine is, I'm going to blame that on the vaccine and say the side effects are kicking in and I can't remember people. Oh, yeah. I no, we're in Cons- are we in Islam? No, we're in Camden. No, we, we are. Kim, Kim is our, is our oh, back here. Um, yeah, it, he was outside with some friends oh, shouting at people in the queue. The Prime Minister himself was hospitalised with the virus. How much more evidence do you need? Well, was he hospitalised with the virus or was he ill from something else? You see, there's a lot of claims going on uh, and, of course, there might have been something happening in the past. You're suggesting the British that. Prime Minister... Well, to one side. Um, I guess I'm thinking of, like, the, the climate movement has, has for, for years, you know, said, follow the science, like, has six, uh, sought to give scientists big platforms and say, like, these are the people who should be setting policy that you know should be or at least you know they should be forefronted in in political um debates but i mean should they have done a bit better in i suppose the last kind of 50 years or so in in forcing politicians to take the path that they evidently haven't taken or is that a kind of a politically naive thing to say i think climate scientists are put in a really difficult position um they didn't really know what to do. Like it's you know to, to have the so somebody once said to me that there's a big difference between climate scientists who are now kind of in their late forties or younger and ones that are a bit older than that. Because if you got into climate science in the seventies or eighties, you just wanted to be able to play with a really big computer, <laughs> and you didn't know that you were dealing with what was going to become such a huge political pot potato. And you also didn't know that you were going to have something as well orchestrated as the climate sceptic movement like I was rereading this um, CIA report from the 1970s recently about climate change written in 1974 the CIA as in yeah Yeah, central intelligence whatever they are Um, so they wrote a report in 1974 about climate change and one of the things that's really striking about that is it's interesting for their political analysis because it's the CIA what does the CIA in 1974 think is going to happen in terms of climate change got various different ideas they put forward what they don't predict at all is the oil industry creating some attack 
skeptics for delaying it through funding the climate skeptic movement. And so people who went into climate science in the 70s or 80s didn't know that was going to happen. Um, people who came into it in the 80, later 80s and 90s and noughties were like, I've watched this on Blue Peter. I know what I'm, you know, I'm here to save the world. And they have a, a slightly different approach to maybe to how they talk to politics or they kind of don't go in thinking that they, they don't have to do that. They are aware that's going to happen. Um, so there's a bit of that. There's also, although a lot of the climate, early climate scientists, like people in the 50s, were very like politically astute in in some ways they were very used to talking to politicians to getting money out of politicians um they weren't necessarily thinking they'd have to have a fight with them though or having a fight with uh business interests i think there's some areas where maybe you could say they could have been a bit more politically aware but i also i think it's i think we shouldn't be blaming it on individual scientists i think we should be looking at kind of how the cultures of science and the structures of science and how the scientific community isn't very good at, at supporting scientists in that sort of situation. In fact, we've got people um, like some scientists who tried to speak out in the 70s. You find a lot of their colleagues just like laughing at them or ridiculing them. If they showed any emotion, they were seen as unscientific. I don't think that helped scientists do their job that well. I think if we'd had support for them to feel human emotions and to have advice about how to do climate comms or you know or just normal comms um if they'd had you know they, they were fighting for budgets of whether they could keep a postdoc or not and they should have been given a huge amount more money and support really i tried i i think the problem is probably more on the, the politicians and to some extent the activists like you said that like activists in the last few years kind of push the science forward and go we must listen to them i think the activists are hiding behind the scientists a bit when they do that i think it's a bit like when boris johnson puts out chris witty and goes look the scientist says this mm. i think activists are guilty of doing that a bit and you're like putting them in the front of the firing line but also uh, in the 60s and 70s the the environment movement weren't necessarily listening to the climate scientists they were very well connected with all sorts of scientists the environment movement from its origins have been very very connected to scientists but they weren't necessarily connected to the geophysicists who were raising alarm about climate change, who were much more likely to be connected to the military. And I think that's one of the reasons why, if you're thinking about alternative pasts and different versions of history they might have lived through, different universes, there might well be one where the environment movement uh, was more receptive to climate earlier and we had climate protests earlier, maybe happening in the 50s or 60s or 70s, rather than it kind of not happening until later 20th century, because they weren't for whatever reason put off by the fact that these scientists worked uh, mainly with the military. Or similarly, the military scientists didn't look at the environment movement and go, ha, you're a load of old cranks, which they also did. I think there's, there's problems on both sides. There was a cultural divide between the environment movement and climate science for quite a long time, which I don't think exists so much anymore, but did I'd say definitely in the 60s and the 70s. Something about the book that I found weirdly optimistic was a theme that runs all the way through it is it's not like a bastard woke up one day and decided, right, I'm a bastard and I'm going to bring climate change into the world. That's not what happened. It was a load of people in a fairly good-natured, inquisitive way, making teeny tiny little discoveries or teeny tiny little investments or things like that, which all kind of added up to the big picture, right? Which, you know, is kind of happening in reverse now in that you've got loads and loads of people making teeny tiny investments in renewables and loads and loads of people telling other people about climate change. Uh, and do you agree... I mean. Is that basically right, that the main story is not one of deliberate malfeasant bastards, it's of like this, the mass of 
humanity making all of these very small little moves in the direction of climate I think change. until you get to the mid 80s and then yes there's some bastards oh cool yeah. uh, well, it's the, the, right let's name them let's put them in the dock <laughs> it's the merchants of doubt you know it's that uh, it's those people who it worked for the oil industry who, who decided they'd run a whole PR spin campaign based on what they did with tobacco which was delay action by peddling the idea that it was uncertain right. and they related to that incredible bit of journalism last week I think by Unearth the Greenpeace kind of investigative outfit who got on record on camera yeah. lobbyists working for Exxon saying oh yeah yeah did we join those shadowy like anti-climate groups yeah of course we did and like we've got all these democrat uh, sentences in our back pocket and I don't know, I found it quite kind of reassuring to know that we're not making this shit up. No. <laughs> like this, well, this, this is what happens. We've got some of the record. Like the stuff that uh, Naomi Orisk and people have done with that is really good book, Merchants of Doubt, which kind of goes through all of that. And there was some stuff that Inside Climate News did a few years ago as well. Like, I mean, that unearthing recently is just a kind of cherry on the top. It's, a, it's outstanding to have that on record. But you've got, there's so much more records of that already that we know. And that, that yeah, those, those, I think, cost us several really important decades and still slow us down. Even if climate scepticism has kind of gone away, the impacts of that larger delaying tactics are still with us. Do you think there's anything that we could have done differently to, to counter that? Like, and, uh, 2020 hindsight and everything. But like, how... How, how do you get around that if that's what very powerful, very moneyed people choose to do? I think it'd be hard. I think when you look at kind of, you know, if I had a time machine to go back to sort of stop that from happening, I think you'd look at how we orchestrate, how we, the architecture of the oil industry before that, where it was already being run by bastards. So yeah, they hadn't done climate change, but they did a lot of plenty of other bastard things. Like <laughs> the oil industry were awful people before climate change. And to have a, you know, an industry that is run by awful people was probably there was not going to be you know the climate was never going to be safe in their hands people what a bunch of bastards you've so you've spent a lot of time delving into the into the past all this but how, how has that process kind of left you feeling about the future because I, I saw actually you were on twitter the other day saying one fair criticism that you thought the book could be subject to was that it was too optimistic um which by concluding we're not necessarily screwed <laughs> we're not all going to burn in a pit of hellfire tomorrow right it just will be next week well i've got a friend who worked in tech policy one said to me i love climate campaigners they're all so optimistic and i was like have you met <laughs> which ones <laughs> but i think we come across to other people as being very optimistic because i think we put up a bit of a a sort of chipper attitude which helps us get through things and also maybe because when we're talking to people we feel a bit defensive about that and I think I felt a bit when I was writing the book I didn't want to write a book that was doom and gloom uh, and as a result maybe it you know it doesn't have as much doom and gloom as you could do it's, it's also partly because it's about the history where things you know it's not about the future a book about the future of climate change kind of has to be about doom and gloom I think really because even if we do all of the things that we need to do to make it okay it's still going to be pretty bad. Like I often think about climate change campaigning. One of the really shit things about it is you can't win because we already lost. Like we lost decades ago. It's like it's just mitigating losses in from all that. It's a sort of much worse version of campaigning to stay in the EU, isn't it? It's like yes, the EU's shit, but trust me, it's going to be a lot worse if we're out. It's it's a kind of just like that on a massive profoundly scale. worse version well, of it, that. It's not a thin 
we, we talked to that Jonathan Rouston about this. It's not a thing you ever win in yeah. that sense, right? Because it's not won or lost. Well, that's true. It's 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 a yeah. it's not a cliff you fall off. It's a slope you slide down. And the positive spin on that is there is always something more in the world to save. And these are all the lines that I tell myself when I'm feeling low. But that said, I did come out of this being surprised. So I was finishing my first draft in the middle of that huge heat wave last year. Do you remember last summer? It mm. got really oppressively hot. And I was working part-time at Possible and I was finishing off my book around it. And every time I had a meeting with anyone at work, everyone's dealing with corona and the heat and they all just seem to be just hurting. And I just felt all of their pain and all of my pain and it's in this intense hot room while I'm writing and I just wanted to kill everyone. And then at the end of it, I thought, is this going to make the conclusion of my book really depressing? But despite that, having <laughs> kind of... When you write the conclusion, you get to take a step back and think about it all. I thought, actually... We are pretty lucky because of the work that the scientists did. Like, if you look at the history of the science of climate change, the climate change science, so much of it was done by luck. Like, Eunice Foote putting some gas cylinders on her windowsill was <laughs> a bit of a weird thing to do. Like, there's so many other people, like Guy Callender, who does some key work in the 30s, his main job was as an engineer. He just liked doing temperature maths for fun. Like, that's a weird hobby. If you didn't have someone who had a weird hobby like that, whose dad was a leading scientist, so he knew how to get published, we wouldn't know the stuff that, we wouldn't have got those warnings till much later. And like, there's loads of things that are just done by accident or loads of people who tried to get funding, who did get funding, who might well not have got funding. We could so easily be sitting here in the weird not summer that we're having going, oh yeah, weather's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. And we're not, we at least know, <laughs> like it's really depressing that what we know. Um, but we are, we have got that. And actually I feel quite hopeful and strengthened. I guess hopeful isn't the right word. It's strength. It gives me a bit more strength. It gives me a reason to get up in the morning knowing that as opposed to just feeling like, oh, we're all awful. We've just dug all these holes in the ground and set fire to them. What's the point of humanity? I think, like, actually, humanity have done some really terrible things, like setting fire to stuff. But we've also pretty in, pretty amazing bunch that we can figure that out. And I think that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Alice, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Again, number four, we Fourth. think. Four. We think oh, you I thought it was only three. Is there, no. some talk, is there some time where I did a Babylon podcast and just don't remember In it your at all? There is. There is. <laughs> I was there drunk. Is. <laughs> uh, we bumped into you on the climate march and you appear in the episode 35 about the climate march. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was scratching my head when you told right, me that. Right, I was yeah. like, I don't remember that particular thing. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming back again. Thank you for writing the book, um, which which is called Our Biggest Experiment A History of the Climate Crisis unless you're buying it in America in which case it's called An Epic History of the Climate Crisis <laughs> I love that because it's America and everything's yeah. bigger same book fantastic fewer, fewer S's more Z's and the word epic in the, in the and uh, available to buy where and when any good bookshop from when is this going out uh, from oh afterwards so it's out it's basically. out now it's out yes <laughs> so that is just about it for another episode of Babble 220 in the can. Thank you very much, Dave, for schlepping all of the kit over here yep. into Stinky London. Let's very see good. if you yep. make it 
back in one piece. Uh, thank you, of course, to Alice for not only appearing on The Babble four times, but for writing this stupendously good book. Do go out and buy it yes, and tell too. the world about it. It is fantastic. Thank you, as ever, to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends and it twinkles this podcast, and to Arthur Stovall, who does our logo. What you can find all over our website, including the bit where you can order T-shirts. Do order a T-shirt. I'm sure next summer there will be cause to wear them. We are on the internet if you want to find us and see how we're doing and talk to us <laughs> and stuff. You can send us an email to hello. It's the only time I've ever noticed you getting nervous. That's a state of babble. It's the only time you seem to be just a little bit on edge. Dot fish. We are on Twitter at the Babble Wagon or Facebook if you just search for Sustainable. Yes? Very good. And do not forget, please, that we are a listener-funded podcast. We make shows because you love them, but also because some kind people pay for them. So you should join those people at slash sustainababble Thank you to everyone who does. Makes massive difference. More people make more difference. Make Dave all happy. Superb. Um, right, I'm off to continue looking at videos of the ocean being on fire, which I presume is a thing you missed because you were on holiday. Yes. But the ocean's been on fire Bad. in like three separate ways. Um, so, you know, that's fine. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.